following message is presented by Erie Evangelical Free Church in Erie, Illinois. We are a church that exists for the good of our community and are proud to share the gospel of Jesus Christ as we seek to know Him and make Him known. I've told you many, many times that I am, by every definition, I am an introvert. I like people, great around people, but when I'm around people for a while, I need to go back and I need to be by myself. That's where I get energy. I'm an introvert. Uh, And I've also told you many times that through my my college studies in psychology and and in my seminary studies of counseling, I've taken every personality test there is. And they all say, you are off the charts an introvert. So so I know this about myself. One of the things that I think develops from that in me, from the fact that I'm an introvert, is the fact that I'm also a homebody. I like to be home. I like to be in my house. We go on vacation, and after like, honestly, like three or four days away, I'm like, let's go home. And if we're out for four, five, six days a week, it's like, do not pass go, do not collect $200, let's get home as quickly as we can when it's time to go home. Because I like my house. I like my couch. I like my own bed. I like my space. Because in those places, there's this unique comfort for me. I like to be home. Because it feels like home. Even if you're somebody who enjoys traveling, even if you're somebody who likes to be gone all the time, you know there becomes a point when you're gone for an extended period of time where all of a sudden now you're ready to be home. Doesn't matter how much you like your traveling or you love where you're at, there comes a point where it's just time to be home. In today's passage, um, it, it's one where, where Jacob finds himself in this place. His time of, of traveling, his time of working for Laban have, have really run their course. And the Lord calls him to come back to his homeland. He over this time has been distracted. He's been pulled away. He's been out on a mission. But now it is time to go home. And what we see as we read this, one of the, one of the um, angles with which we see the stories is that question of, okay, in our lives, in my life, when I've been sidetracked, when I've been pulled away, maybe it's for good reasons, maybe it's not for good reasons, whatever it is, when I've been sidetracked, how do I return home? How do I come back to God's calling, God's direction, God's plan in my life when I've been away. And again, in this passage of these 55 verses, there's a huge story happening, and and we won't get into the weeds of every detail along the way, but we'll see through the story how God gives Jacob and how God then gives us three paths to help bring us back to his purpose and his calling. And the first of those paths comes in verses 1 through 21, where we find that if we're going to come back home, then we follow God's direction. Verses 1 through 21, we follow God's direction. If you remember what we covered in this story of Jacob and through his life, we remember that God promised to Jacob that he would receive Canaan, as his homeland. Remember, he was in Bethel. 
And God made this promise to him. Not just to give him this land, but promised to bring him back here after he had gone to pay Aram, to Haran, to, to, to Laban's country and found his wife. And Jacob has gone to Laban's house. He's found his wife. He's flourished there. But now it's time to come home. In verses 1 through 3, we read here, it says, Now Jacob heard what Laban's sons were saying. Jacob has taken all that was our father's and has built this wealth from what belonged to our father. And Jacob saw from Laban's faith that his attitude toward him was not the same as before. The Lord said to him, Go back to the land of your ancestors and to your family, and I will be with you. And Jacob has been here for probably 20-ish years in this land of, of Haran, in Laban's household. And he's starting to to pick up on some, some resentment from his extended family. None of you would ever have resentment to a family member who's gave 20 years in your house. <laughs> I can't even go into that. just thought I'd throw it out. But he starts to feel this resentment. Well, why is he feeling resentment? Not because he's been there, not because he's working, not because he's living there, but because he's become wealthy while working for Laban. Remember last week, we saw how, he, how did he become wealthy? Well, it came with this deal with the sheep and the different colored sheep and how he was going to, those were his. These uncommon sheep God caused to flourish and now made Jacob wealthy. And Laban's sons are like, he's stealing all our stuff. He's taking our inheritance. And he even sees Laban begin to be frustrated. So God says, okay, Jacob, it's time. Time to go home. If we read through this passage, verses 4 through 16, Jacob gathers his family and starts to explain the situation to his wife. Like, here's what's happening. Here's everything that God has brought me to. Here's, here's where we've gone. Here's where we've come to. Here's what your father has done. Now, I think God's calling me to go. And, and Rachel and Leah say, yes, if this is what God has said, let's go. They said, and, and this will come into play later, but they say, listen, our father has mistreated us just as he's mistreated you. They say, our father has treated us as a commodity. He's even stolen money from us. What part do we have in our father's house? God calls you to go? Our father may be upset with that, but we're going to follow the Lord. Let's go. And so verse 17 through 21, Jacob and his family begin their trek out of Peyton Arab, out of this land in which they had been living. And they sneak away under the cover of night, headed back to Canaan, to the land that God had promised to Jacob. So again, after 20 years in this land, Jacob is finally ready to pick up, to move on, and to see the fulfillment of God's next promises. Parents, have you ever given direction to your kids, like more than once, like maybe three, four, five times. Do you ever have, hear yourself utter the phrase, how many times do I have to say this? How many times do we need to go, didn't I tell you this three or four times already? I wish you could stand here right now and see the looks on your faces. <laughs> we get frustrated. Right? And, and even if you don't have this with 
your children. You have this with a, maybe an employee or a, a co-worker or a sibling or someone else where you have this moment where you're frustrated that you've given this instruction. You've said, time and time again, let's do this, and they don't do it. We get frustrated because that person has either A, gotten just distracted and forgetful, or B, they become outright rebellious. They just don't want to do it because you've told them to. We've all had that experience. We've all had that experience in our faith, too. When we've been on the other end of that. Because we know, as followers of Christ, God gives us plenty of instructions in our lives. He says, you want to live the best life, you want to be faithful, you want to know me to the fullest, here. And God says it, and we're like, eh. And God says it again. We don't do it. We don't go. We don't follow his instruction. We know what we're supposed to do, and yet we can all look at our lives. Every single one of us can look at our lives and say, yes, I have failed at that here, or here, or here. And sometimes we look at it and say, we have failed magnificently. And why? Why? If we know what we're supposed to do, but God keeps telling us the same things over and over again, and we keep not doing it, why is that such a problem for us? Sometimes, sometimes it's intentional. Sometimes we are rebellious people, right? Nobody's going to amen that, but (laughs) we're all rebellious people sometimes. But there's also many times, for a lot of us, when we simply let life get in the way of faithfulness. You know what I'm talking about, right? Where there's just other stuff that comes up, you're like, yeah, i got to do this. And then we get distracted. We get pulled away. Maybe it's because of work. Maybe it's because of family situations. Whatever it is, we we let the the worries, the concerns, the situations, the tasks of our life defeat our faithful obedience to what God calls us to do. In Matthew 6, 34, verse you've heard many times, Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, don't get distracted by all the stuff that you think is important. He says, you follow me. You trust me. You listen to me. You follow my directions. And yeah, we all let stuff get in the way. God says, hey, I want you to visit or call that person. You're like, yeah, I will. As soon as I get done with this thing that I'm working on right now, I'll do that, Lord. And then three days later, you're like, oh, I forgot to do that. Or maybe God says, hey, you, you need to designate your tithe or your offering to my house, to the work of my kingdom. And you're like, yeah. Yeah, but first, God, first, I need, I need to pay for cable or a newer cell phone or a better car kids' youth sports program. You don't do it. Maybe God says, I want you to spend time with me in prayer. I want you to dedicate time set apart to just you sitting in silence speaking to me. And you're like, yeah, I know the Bible says that, but when I sit in silence, my mind kind of runs all over the place, and I pray really well for a minute, 
and then it's just wasted time. So I'm not going to do that. We get distracted by the things in our lives, by the way we see ourselves, by the situations around us. We get distracted. But here's the thing. Let me be really harsh with you right now. Okay? I'm telling you I'm going to be harsh, so it shouldn't feel as harsh. <laughs> distraction, when we allow distraction to continue, distraction becomes unfaithfulness. And unfaithfulness is sin. James 4.17 says, you know the good that you're to do, but you don't do it. It's what? It's sin. What you need to say is, well, you know what you're supposed to do, but you get distracted, you get pulled aside. When you don't do it, that is sin. And I'd love to tell you that there is some, you know, pithy five-step application that will cure you forever of distraction in your life. I don't have it. Okay, I don't have it for you. It's just a matter of the decision that we are going to make in our lives. Will I follow the Lord or will I not? And it's a, it's a decision that we make, not just once in our lives. It's one we make every single moment of our lives with every situation, every conversation, every decision, everything that comes our way. We have to ask ourselves, am I going to follow God's direction or not? Am I going to choose Jesus over everything else? If the answer is no, then we're in trouble. our call is to follow God's direction. There will constantly be distractions in our lives. The question is, are we willing to set aside those distractions and follow God's direction? Where in our lives have we allowed ourselves to be overwhelmed with the situations, stuff of life, and allow them to take over, to distract us from even the simplest and clearest instructions that God has given to us in our lives. Jacob finally comes to this point. He's been distracted and pulled aside a couple of different times in his life. When he comes to this point, God says, okay, go. And what's he do? He's going to follow God's direction. And that path is going to bring him home. The same happens for us. Following, God, following God's direction will require faithfulness on our part, will require sacrifice on our part. But it will always lead us then to the next path. We follow God's direction, but then we face the world's accusations. We face the world's accusations, verses 22 through 42. And what we find in this next section of this story is that Laban, after three days, right, Jacob took his family and left in the middle of the night. Starts heading back for Canaan. After three days, Laban gets word that Jacob and, and his family and, and all his wealth and everything is gone. And so he starts tracking down Jacob. He goes on the chase. And after seven days, he finally catches up with Jacob. But on the way, 
he has an encounter with God. God shows up in a dream and tells him not to talk to Jacob. In, in verse 24, it says, When God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream at night, said, Watch yourself, God warned him. Don't say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Real quick, when God says don't say something to this person, either good or bad, what's left to say? Nothing. Nothing. God says don't say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. But Laban can't help himself. He just cannot help himself. So he catches up to to Jacob and his family. And Laban's like, whoa, 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 Jacob, where are you going and what are you doing? And in this speech that he gives to Jacob, he, he paints himself as as this grieving father whose family was stolen from him. Verses 26 through 28, Laban said to Jacob, What have you done? You have deceived me and and taken my daughters away like prisoners of war. Why did you secretly flee from me, deceive me, and not tell me? I would have sent you away with joy and singing, with tambourines and lyres. But you didn't even let me kiss my grandchildren and my daughters. You have acted foolishly. Sounds like a grieving father, right? You you took my children, you took my grandchildren, you didn't let me say goodbye. If you told me what you were doing, I would have helped you out. And if you remember back to the rest of this story of Jacob and Laban, this is not what Laban would have done. There is nothing in the way that Laban acts up to this point that says, oh, that sounds about right. Laban has been deceptive at every turn. He's trying to take advantage of Jacob, has taken advantage of his daughters, has done whatever he can to help himself. He's not a grieving father here. And then, to top it all off, he says, yeah, not only have you taken my family, but you've stolen my stuff. He says, on your way out, you stole something that belonged to me. And we, we see how this comes about if we went back to verse 19 when Jacob and his family were getting ready to leave. And it says, when Laban had gone to shear his sheep, Rachel stole her father's household idol. And we don't really know what the household idol was. There's no description. There's no clarity in, in the Hebrew language as to exactly what this thing was. But it, it, it was probably some small figurine of some kind that stood in for for either God or for one of the gods of the area in which they lived. Whatever it was, Rachel stole it. And again, we don't know why Rachel stole it. Did she take it as a keepsake? Did she think it would help her travel? We don't know. But whatever the case, Rachel steals it. She doesn't tell Jacob. Jacob doesn't know about this. But Laban's like, listen, somebody stole stuff. Jacob begins to respond then to Laban. He says, listen, I left because I was afraid. I was afraid of what you would do. Look at our history together. It seems reasonable that Jacob's afraid. And unaware of of Rachel's sin, he even tells Laban, look, we didn't take any of your stuff. Search all our our camp. Search all our tents. Look for your household item. He says, fine. I'll take a look. And he starts hunting around Eventually, he arrives at Rachel's tent. And Rachel, in verse 35, says, She said to her father, Don't be angry, my lord, that I cannot stand up in your presence. I'm having my period. So Laban searched 
but could not find the household idol. Here's the significance of what happened right here. What's been the basis of Jacob and Laban's relationship? We think to these last couple weeks. You know what the basis of their relationship was? Deception. It is one deception after another. And what is it that then Rachel uses against her father? Deception. How is Laban thwarted in this attempt to overcome Jacob and take all his stuff back? Deception. Okay, God here is not saying, listen, deception's okay. Use it in your life when it can be to your advantage. That's not what God is saying through this story. Really, the, the, the lesson here is you're going to reap what you sow. You want to be a deceptive person, you will reap deception. And Laban suffers because of his deception. Well, at this point, we get back to the, the point of this story. Jacob just then begins to lay in to Laban, recounting the 20 years of mistreatment in verses 36 through 42. But if we take these verses, 22 through 42, we say, well, okay, what, what, is this, what does this mean? You can, sum it up, you can sum it up like this. We can run all we want. We can hide all we want. But opposition won't go away. We can't avoid it. We must face it. Jacob tries to avoid opposition. That's why he leaves in the middle of the night. Does that stop the opposition from coming? No. You will face opposition. And even though Jacob hasn't sold the household item, his family faces that accusation. Because of what Rachel has done. We can't avoid it. We will always face it. Remember when you were a kid and you got scared in the middle of the night? What's the first thing you do when you're scared? Let's, you're, you're, you're laying in bed, you wake up in the middle of the night, you've had a bad dream, or you're worried about what's in the closet or under the bed. Where's the first place you go? Usually it's under your blanket, right? Throw the blanket up over your head, hide out. If I can't see it, it can't see me. Have you ever had that? What's the point of that? You ever stop to think about that? Why did you hide under your blanket? Did you really think that was going to stop anything? Right? If there's danger lurking outside, your blanket is doing nothing to save you. Your inability to see it is doing nothing to save you. You can't just pretend it's not there and have it be gone. Same way, our faith will face opposition as we travel, as we run home to Jesus. That's something Jesus promised us. John 16, 33, Jesus says, I told you these things so that you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Believer, church, follower of Jesus, Real comforting words, Jesus. Thanks for that one. You will have suffering. You can't avoid it. But be courageous. I have conquered the world. That's what Jesus gives us, the peace in the face of suffering. It's not because we've avoided it. It's not because we've worked our way around it. It's not because we've pretended it's not there. It's because Jesus has overcome the world. 
that we have peace in the suffering that we are guaranteed to face. We will all face struggle. We will all face suffering. The trouble you and I face, maybe it won't be life and death. We have brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who face the daily threat to their lives for trusting Jesus. Maybe we won't face that, but we live in a world, we live in a culture that throws accusations against us every day because of our faith, right? You'll hear things like, you can practice your religion, just don't speak about it, don't share it, don't express it publicly, keep it to yourself. Because that's dangerous stuff. We live in a culture that says, you must call everything I do and everything I like and everything I want to do is good, or else what? You're bigoted, you're hate-filled, you're an evil person. We live in a culture, in a world that, that will tell us, yeah, sure, you can, you can read your Bible, but remember it's an outdated script that doesn't relate to the realities of the superior intelligence of the people of this day. If you're really going to trust in that book, man, you are dumb. We are to be faithful. And we must be prepared to face the accusations of the world, the trouble, the suffering of this life. We must be prepared to be outcasts, to be misfits, to be, as Peter calls us in, in 1 Peter 2.11, aliens and strangers in this world. We must be prepared to be outcasts because you know what? Abraham was an outcast. Jacob is an outcast. Moses was an alien. The Old Testament prophets were strangers in their home country. Jesus was a misfit. The disciples were cast out cast aside. The early church was constantly constantly set up as misfits and outcasts. Facing the accusations and the trials and the attacks of the culture around them. And so we too must be ready. Because you will face the accusations of the world around you. In spite of our place outside of the acceptance of, of our world, our culture, we continue to stand strong and confident, faithfully following the commands and the callings of the Lord, because that is the only way that we stand firm in the face of those accusations, is that we stand not on the faulty ground of our own ideas, our own intelligence, the best logic and thoughts that we might have, but we stand on the firm foundation of the truth of our God and of His Word. There's never a question of whether we will face trials and struggles and accusations in this life. There's only a question of how we stand in the face of those trials those accusations and those struggles. As we seek to obey the Lord and stand in the face of accusations and assault, still we find this third path home. 
verse 43 through verse 55, we're shown that if that path home, then we rejoice in God's deliverance. We rejoice in God's deliverance. The passage concludes here. And after Jacob has, has stood up to Laban and told him all the stuff that's going on, Laban finally suspects, says, okay, that you can go. And the, the passage concludes with this treaty between Laban and Jacob as they part ways. <clears throat> Jacob sets in the land where they're standing this marker for a covenant between the two. In verse 45, he says, it says, so Jacob picked out a stone and set it up as a marker. And in verse 59, he gives the explanation for this. He says, may the Lord watch between you and me when we are out of each other's sight. He says, this marker is a reminder to us. Right? If you tend to be coming down to me, Laban, or if I am ever traveling up towards you, we will see this marker and we will remember that we have made this treaty of peace here. And so finally, the two men separate. Verse 55 says, Laban got up early in the morning, kissed his grandchildren and daughters, and blessed them. Then Laban left to return home. Remember, Laban had set out three days after Jacob had left, chases him down for seven days, looking to get back, really looking to get back his stuff, what he believes Jacob has taken from him, but God delivers Jacob. When we look back at this entire story, we are reminded of this one particular truth. That God delivers His people for His purposes and to His glory. 55 verses. God delivers His people for His purposes and to His glory. God blessed Jacob through this whole thing. Right? Jacob has grown from the time he came to first see Laban until now. He's married. He has children. He has possessions. He is, we saw last week, it said that Jacob became very rich. God blessed him. In the same way God has blessed you. And God has blessed me. <clears throat> And God has blessed his church. And God has blessed this church. We talked last week about how you can look at your life and see all these ways that God has blessed you. I challenge you to take some time to write out, to, to spend 10 minutes and sit down and write out all the ways that God has blessed you in your life. All of these evidences, all of these pictures of how God has loved you and cared for you, but here's the thing, even without any evidence of material blessing in our lives, we are reminded through Jacob's life that the true joy of the greatest blessing that we know is the blessing of God's victory. The blessing of knowing that we serve the God who is always victorious, who is never defeated. The God who is reigning and ruling over all things in all places and at all times. So that no matter our circumstances, we know God is working to mature us, to form us into kingdom men and women who rejoice in whatever we encounter. Because we know that God has already, or will soon, 
deliver the victory that accomplishes His will and His purposes. Because we know that all of our lives, all of this creation was created, was spoken in that being by our perfect, holy God. Who made you and me to know Him and love Him and serve Him and watch us turn our backs on Him time and time and time again until He finally sent Jesus Christ, His Son. After showing us and time and time and time again that we could not be victorious on our own. That we could never be good enough. We could never be smart enough. We could never be powerful enough to win. God says, let me show you what victory looks like. And he sent his son to live perfectly, die sacrificially, to rise victoriously, to deliver us completely. A victory that, if we're honest, you and I will never fully comprehend Because it is so much greater than anything we could ever achieve. That victory comes not by our abilities, but by God's love, grace, mercy, forgiveness. That's the reason why when you read through the book of Philippians, you see Paul come back time and time and time again to the word joy. If you read Philippians... Teaches all kinds of stuff in that book. But you'll see that word come back time and time again to joy. And then you sit back and you think, okay, he's preaching about, he's teaching about joy. Where was he at this time? He was in jail. Did he know whether he was going to live or die? Nope. And yet he continues to come back to joy. Why? Not because he's in prison. Not because he doesn't know if he's going to live or die. He comes back to joy because he knows what Jesus has already done and what Jesus is doing. He says, what happens to me doesn't really matter. In Philippians 1, verse 12 and 13, he says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel so that it has become known through the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. He says, it is all about Christ. It is the joy of Jesus' victory on the cross and in the empty tomb that I can rejoice. Even if they put me to death, that's fine. Jesus won, and Jesus has delivered me. And I have joy and hope and peace, no matter my circumstance, not because I have overcome my circumstance, but because Christ has overcome the world. Every time we talk about the book of Philippians, I say this to you, and I'm going to say it again. I pray that one day I get to that point. I pray that one day the outpouring of my heart is exactly what Paul talks about. I don't care what happens to me. God's victorious, and that's enough. I struggle with that. I struggle with that all the time. But I know where I'm going. I know where this road of my faith is taking me. And I pray that God leads me down this road far enough to where I get to that point. Nothing should bring us more joy than the celebration of God's deliverance. Not because He's delivered me, but because he's the deliverer. Do we continually rejoice in God's salvation? We will all find ourselves from time to time stuck 
away from home. We'll find ourselves in places where we know we ought not be. In those moments, maybe those circumstances, maybe those seasons of life, the problem is never that home has moved. It's that we have, by rebellious intent or by distracted neglect, not made our steps to return. Fortunately, no matter how far you may feel that you are from home today, how far you have turned, how far you, you, you just feel like you're missing out, no matter where you're at, God has made a way home for you. By the presence of the Holy Spirit working through the sanctifying power of Jesus' blood, God has made a way. Our job is simply to make the choice. Because it always starts with the choice. Do I want to come home or not? And if the answer is yes, God has given us that path to follow his directions, to face the world's opposition and to rejoice in his deliverance. Church family, that road, those paths, those are not easy. They're very simple, but they are not easy. But I can promise you that life is always better at home. May we be ready to follow the path home today. In spite of all the hurdles that that we may find in our way, let us choose to run to Jesus. And as we do, may we be examples to the world around us of faithful obedience to the truth and joy of life in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the gift that we have of knowing, of loving you, of serving you. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that while we never receive all the answers that we want, you have given us everything we need. So Lord, we thank you. We praise you. And we pray that as we think of, of our lives and we look and we say, man, my my." locked in step with Jesus right now. Lord, when the answer becomes no, give us the, the wisdom to fall back on your love, your grace, your mercy. That we might return to you to walk the paths that you have laid before us. To know that you've given us work to do. But it's not work to find your approval or to be worthy of you. You've taken care of all of that by the sacrifice of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. But there's work to faithfulness and to maturity and to learning to grow to walk in that path with you. Lord, give us wisdom, give us strength. And the peace and the joy and the hope of your love, your grace, and your mercy. And we celebrate the path. May we continue to walk with you knowing that you have taken care of everything we need. And we love you.
We thank you. We praise you. In your great and awesome name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about Erie Evangelical Free Church or our ministries, please visit www.eriefree.com or join us in person at 1409 16th Avenue, Erie, Illinois.